Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, specifically verses 7 through 14. This morning, Exodus 3, 7 through 14. For those that are worshiping with us in person, we're grateful that you're here. For those that are worshiping from home, online, we're grateful that you've taken your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus as we as a church continue to walk through this rich text as we know as the book of Exodus. As we turn to Exodus chapter 3, there there are moments in life that I'm reminded of that are rare, no doubt, but what is a commonality of them is that our words cannot quite capture the magnitude of the moment. Those aren't everyday experiences, but, but there's some experiences in life where our words just fall short. It's the husband and wife in the delivery room hearing for the first time the sound of their baby crying. And words in that moment cannot encapsulate the joy that they feel. There is a, 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 a blushing bride that, that comes into the sanctuary, and, and there is the groom there. And, and for the first time in, in that moment, that, that, that groom captures the, the glimpse of his bride-to-be. And, and, and if I, as the pastor, say to him, hey, what are you feeling? It's in that moment where we all know words just can't quite capture the magnitude of the moment. We go back to that hospital, and we're not in a delivery room, but we're in an ICU, and, and in that room, there is a loved one that is holding the hands of, of the one that they have been married to for, for decades, and as they hear that breath, that final breath on this earth, and they recognize in that moment that, that they will breathe their next breath in the, the presence of a healing God for an eternity to come, it's in that moment that, that words cannot encapsulate the magnitude of the moment. They're rare moments, but they're moments where words fall short. Handel, the great composer, after he finishes the Hallelujah Chorus, tradition tells us that he falls to his knees and weeps in silence at the, at the moment of, of, of basking in the grandeur and the glory of God that was revealed to him in the inspiration of that song. Words fall short. Now, there are certain passages all of God's Word is inspired, but there are, certain, uh, there are certain Mount Everest peaks in God's Word, and we come now to, to one of those, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, where God reveals His name to Moses. And I just want you to know as a disclaimer, if, if I have two hours before you this afternoon, if I had four hours before you, if I had six hours before you, if I had eight hours, that, that it isn't that I don't have enough words, but it's just my words are going to fall short to fully encapsulate the, the magnitude of the scriptural moment here of Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. We turn to the attention of the text, and we're reminded as Moses was, was a shepherd to his father-in-law Jethro's flock, he goes to the far side of the wilderness, he sees a bush that is, has a fire burning from within it, but the bush is not being consumed. Moses says, 
what you would say, that's strange, that's unique. He turns aside. God speaks to him, Moses, Moses. You're standing upon holy ground. Take off your shoes. It's in that moment that God speaks to Moses and what we read in verse 7 through verse 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and now... Behold, verse 9, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In verses 7 through 14, Verses 7 through 10 that we just read, but in the encapsulation of 7 through 14, there are going to be two questions that emerge from this text. And the first question that we see in these four verses is when God calls, who goes? Notice the repetition of this theme. We, we've opened up the book of Exodus and we've already found at the end of chapter 2 where we have this declaration that God has heard the cries of his people, the Israelites, who are for over 400 years in Egyptian captivity, in bondage, that their cries, their oppression has reached the very throne of God and God says, I'm going to come down. The repetition is here. We know it not just from Exodus chapter 2, but we see it in Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses, I've seen, I've heard, I care, I'm coming down. It's a reminder that the Israelites have a problem. They have a problem that is beyond their ingenuity. They have a problem that is beyond their intellect. It isn't that they can figure their way out of Egyptian captivity. No, they are helpless and they're hopeless. But guess what? God, the amazing, awesome, mighty, working God, sees their need. And what the scripture tells us is that he comes down to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt, from the hands of Pharaoh himself. It's a picture dusting for the fingerprints of Christ in the text. It is a picture of your salvation and it is a picture of my salvation. We have a bondage that we cannot get out of. We have a Pharaoh by the name of Satan himself who holds us in captivity. We have an Egypt that is our sin that so uh, encapsulates us and, and so entangles us. We need someone who can free us from this bondage. We need someone who can bring us out of our sinful plight into the freedom that we can have, and we cannot do it. Your mom, your dad, they cannot do it for you. A well-meaning co-worker cannot do it for you. Only God can set us free from our sinful predicament. And praise God, 
that the Israelites could not go up to God, but God comes down to the Israelites. And so we, in our sinfulness, we cannot go up to God, but God comes down to us. That movement is the movement of salvation, not just for the Israelites, but it is the movement of salvation for each and every one of us. God has come down to us to deliver us from the bondage of our sin, and he has come down in the form of his perfect son, Jesus, for whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I love the way that Paul, when writing to the church at Philippi, comes to chapter 2 and he says, but Jesus emptied himself. Notice this downward progression by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself down, 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 by becoming obedient to the point of death. Down, down, even death on the cross. Your salvation is always the downward movement of a God who sees, knows, cares, and remedies your bondage and my bondage. Our only hope is a God who has seen us in our sinfulness and has made, he has made a path for us to follow him, to be freed from our bondage. Our salvation is in the one who has come down and his name is Jesus. Just as the Israelites were set free, so we, the children of God, can be set free through Jesus Christ the one who has lived a perfect life and died a saving death. Now notice the change of movement. Then notice how surprising verse 10 would be because you can imagine Moses hearing what God is going to do for his people. Hey, Moses, I've seen, I've heard, I know their plight, I'm coming down. And notice what he says in verse 10, and you go to Pharaoh. You can imagine at that moment that that Moses is, is saying to himself, I am so glad that finally that you have heard. I am so glad that finally you're going to do something about this. I am so glad that finally you're going to come set us free. And then God says, you're the man, you go to Pharaoh. And it's in that moment that Moses says, no, hold up. That's a bait and switch. I didn't see that coming. What do you mean about me going? I thought you were the one that saw. I thought you were the one that, uh, that heard. I thought you are the one who has made a way here. And notice, when God calls, who goes? The same question remains for us today. Who does he use as ambassadors of this glorious gospel message that through Jesus, we too can have salvation? Only God saves Only God can bring someone from death to life. Only God can bring someone from from darkness to sight. Only God can do that. But notice that he uses you and me. He uses us as ambassadors. We are the public relations team to share the good news, to point people to the only God who saves. Now, he could have if he wanted to. He could have said, hey, look, I've got, I've got a whole legion of angelic ambassadors, and they're going to be the ones that go throughout the earth to point people to Jesus. But that's not what he does. He says, Moses, you're the man. And he says to each of us as followers of him, 
You are the man. You are the woman. We are his ambassadors. We are his heralds who go into our schools, go into our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and we have the great joy through our words and through our actions to point to the one who has brought us from bondage to freedom, from death to life. You are his plan A. You're not plan C. You're not plan D. It isn't that we walk through Scripture and we see that God has exhausted all of his resources, and at the end of the day, the only person left is Moses. No, Moses is plan A. You're plan A. I'm plan A. We're the ones that are called to carry this good news to those that we live with and come into contact with, and we, just like Moses, say, me? Sure about that? I mean, just think about the power of, of just word-of-mouth advertisement, even today. I mean, there, there are 278 gyms in the Birmingham metro area. Now, why does a person go to one gym instead of another gym? Is it because they get all 278 gyms and have this long spreadsheet across here, and they've got the monthly memberships, and they've got the mileage from their home or the mileage from their workplace, and then they've got all the different offerings, and they sort of like cross-triangulate all this information, and they come down to, this is it. No! Well, you might be that person, but you're, you're very unique if that's you. But the reason is, is somebody told them about what happened when they walked into that gym, the transformation that occurred, the community that they experienced. And because of that personal testimony, that personal word of mouth, so people go. And, and it is the same today. The power of your testimony. The power of you through your integrity, through your words, showing people what it looks like to be a person imperfect, yes. One who has sinned, yes. But one who has been captured by the grace of a life-changing God. This is the privilege we have. I'm telling you, there's so much pessimism in our country right now. There's so much uh, uh, glass half empty kind of sentiment in our country right now. And look, I, I, I have no crystal ball. I cannot predict anything here. But I tell you this, what a privilege it is that God has called each and every one of us to live right now where we are for such a time as this. What a privilege it is in a a time where where people's handles are being pulled out from under them. Their their, uh, focus has been been changed in the midst of of what has, has been upsetting in the last 11 months. And it's in this time that so many people are saying, what really matters? What really holds? And guess what? We have the answer and that answer is a person and that answer is Jesus Christ. And we have the privilege to be ambassadors in this moment of time. It's not accidental. It's providential. It's not accidental, but it is the great privilege that we have. Think of Paul writing to the church at Rome, 10th chapter, verse 14. How then will they call on him of whom they've never believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You are his ambassador. You are his plan A. 
in your school, in your workplace, in our neighborhood. God is still calling. Are we willing to be his messengers? When God calls, who goes? You and me. When God calls, why hesitate? Look with me in verses 11 through 12. Notice that there are two points of questioning that Moses has for God. The first uh, source of question that he has is, hey, who am I to go? I mean, it's a rightful question. Look with me in verses 11 through 12. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, his, his first hesitation is to say, who am I? Who am I to go? Now, there, there is a perfect storm of circumstances that justify Moses' hesitation here. He, he, number one says, who am I? He realizes his inadequacy. Secondly, he realizes the potency and power of Pharaoh. He has got to go to, to the number one person in that ancient Near Eastern world that the buck stops with him. All power, all rule. So he, inadequate you know, shepherd, tending the flock of his father-in-law, who's been banished from the empire for over 40 years, who am I to go to that guy with this insurmountable ask? Yeah, Pharaoh. Let all of those slaves go free. Well, of course, Moses, in that moment, he realizes in light of the potency of Pharaoh, in light of the insurmountable ask that God is asking him to do, it's in that moment that he feels nothing but inadequacy, nothing but a rightful question. Hey, hey God, are you sure you've got the right person here? And notice what God doesn't do. It isn't that God pulls Moses close to him, kind of rubs him on the head, and reminds him, hey, hey, Moses, you know you're the ideal person, right? I mean, how many people do you know were adopted into Pharaoh's palace? How many people do you know of Hebrew origin? How many people do you know that have been humbled and broken in these last decades? Actually, Moses, out of all of the people, you are the ideal person. But no, that is not what God says to Moses because Moses doesn't need a greater self-confidence. Moses needs a greater God-confidence. God says to Moses nothing about his qualifications. Rather, he says, I will be with you. That's a good word. That is a good word for all of us. Because when God calls us to be his ambassadors, when God calls us to that next step of faithfulness, when God calls us to be salt and light in our school in our workplace, in our neighborhood, we're full of inadequacies. The task, when we know that God is calling us to have a gospel-centered conversation with a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, do you know the whispers that you hear in your ear in that moment? Who are you? Who are you to tell them about a life-changing God. Anybody, so kind of a rule of thumb, anybody that changed your diapers is a hard person to talk to about something of that significance because that person knows your failures. 
knows your insufficiencies. And so there are oftentimes hesitations we have going to our family members or going to our coworkers and talking about the life-changing work that God has done in our life because we're tempted to say, just like Moses, who am I? And God says, I'm with you. I'm not calling you for this God-sized task because of your credentials. I am calling you because I am with you. I I will qualify the one I call. I will go with you because I'm the only one who can accomplish this task. I don't know how many of you are going to be watching the Super Bowl tonight. I don't know how many diehard Buccaneer fans that we have here at Dawson. I don't know how many Kansas City Chief fans that we have here, but Super Bowl's tonight. If you didn't know that, so we got Tom Brady against Patrick Mahomes. We've got the greatest of all time quarterbacks, Tom Brady, going up against this 26-year-old phenom of a quarterback that seems to rival him down the road to being the greatest of all times. I mean, you got this perfect NFL marketing, just like amazing matchup that's coming here, and I, I don't care anything about it. You know why I don't care anything about it? Because the Buccaneers beat my Saints. They just beat them, and they beat them. They, they just whooped them up and down the field. I'm a huge Drew Brees fan. And Drew Brees, almost like Tom Brady, a year behind him, is coming to sort of what seems to be the end of his career. And it wasn't his best game. And they got beat really badly. But did you see what happened when the fourth quarter ended? Did anybody see the sort of viral video that some of the reporters shot of Drew Brees after the game? He comes back onto the Super, uh, Superdome Stadium football field right there, and he's got his wife with him, and he's got his youngest daughter that's sort of clinging to his leg right there, and he's showered, and he's dressed, and he's back on the field. His two younger sons are there with him, and what he does in that moment is he embraces Tom Brady. Darth Vader himself, the one who just beat him. Like, what's going on? Well, here's a man. Here's a man whose identity, you know this about Drew Brees, he's a follower of Jesus. But Drew Brees is someone whose identity is more than the accomplishments on the field. A person whose only identity is in the scoreboard is a person after that game who gets out of the stadium as quickly as possible. But he embraces with a hug. Tom Brady takes the ball and he's dropping back and he's throwing these uh, uh, touchdown passes in the end zone to, to Drew Brees' kids and they just talk and they just talk and they just talk. Here's a man whose identity is more than football. But, but there's something else about this. I've only been to the Superdome one time. We had a mission trip. I took our students when I was a student minister actually here when I, when I lived in, in Birmingham. I first go around as a student at Beeson. And we went to the Superdome and it was in that moment that I had, I don't know, 20 or 30 kids. And I'm 100% sure that all of them would have loved to get on that Superdome field and, and, and for me or for the friends to throw footballs to them, but not one of us could get close to that field. Why? Because there's security that are guarding the field. Could you imagine the, the new security guard after that game between the Saints and the Buccaneers who comes onto the field and he sees these two boys at the end and they're, they're throwing the ball with each other. And you can imagine that security guard who's a little o- overzealous, so sort of kind of a little bit of Barney Fife in him. And he, and he runs over there and he says, boys, 
Get off the field. Boys, you don't, you don't belong here. The game's over. Get on. I don't know how you got down to the field, but you can imagine those two boys in that moment that just said, <clears throat> he's our dad. He, he's our dad. We're with him. So there's nothing about being an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old boy that qualifies you to get on the field, but when you're the sons of the starting quarterback, you have access and you have authority to be what no, where no other 8- and 8 and 10-year-old can be. And so we come before God and he says, I want you to go to places, and we say, God, we're not qualified to do that. I want you to have conversations. Well, we're not qualified to do that. And he says, hey, you remember whose you are? Do you remember that you're a child of the Most High God? Do you remember that your authority rests in me and your relationship with me? Do you remember that I am with you? Moses says, who am I? And God responds with, I am with you. Notice also in this passage that Moses asks a second question, a final question. He not only asks, who am I? He asks, who are you? Verse 13 through 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am I sent you. It's at this moment where my words are inadequate to describe the wealth of what is being conveyed in this passage in verse 14. It's in this moment that you need to know that, that what Moses is asking of God is not just a designation for God. He is asking for the very essence of God. Names throughout the Bible, they denote significance, essence, the very uh, character of a person here. We see it in the Bible where Abram becomes Abraham because he's the father of a great nation, where uh, Jacob becomes Israel, where Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the greatest missionary of the church. It's in a name where you are able to see the very character of a person, and it's in this name, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. What God is saying is not a designation. He is saying, this is who I am at my core. Tell them that the God who is self-existent is sending you. Tell them the one who is not dependent upon anything else, he is sending you. Tell them that the God who is the creator and sustainer of all that exists well, he is sending you. The one who causes to be what is, is sending you. Tell them the God who never changes, whose being doesn't develop, who doesn't evolve, the one who is perfect in all of his attributes, I'm the one who is sending you. Tell them the God who is eternal. No past, no present, no future. The timeless God I am sending you. Tell them, I am has sent you. Moses' response to God when he calls him is your response and my response. To say to God, I can't. What you're asking me to trust you with is too overwhelming. And what God says to the I can't of Moses, what God says to the I can't of David and the I can't of all of us here is I am. We say to God, hey God, I can't 
be an ambassador for you in this difficult family situation. I can't live with integrity in the midst of this difficult work situation. I can't trust you because do you know the diagnosis that is before me? I can't trust you because do you know the failures that are behind me? Do you know the difficulties that are walking around me? And to each of our accounts, God says, I am. And he doesn't just say it in Exodus 3. In John chapter 8, God's eternal son who comes down to the earth says, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was. And do you think Jesus says this accidentally? No. He says, I am. That the God who called Moses is with you right now. And that same God who called Moses is the same God who sent his son to die for us. And is the same God whose spirit lives in us. That's why we can hear John chapter 15 verse 5 where Jesus says, notice again, I am. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To each of our I can'ts, to each of our I will nots, God responds with I am. To what God calls us this week to do, what God equips us to do this week, we're tempted to say, I'm not good enough, and God responds, I am. We say, I am not strong enough, and God says, I am. We say, I am not confident enough, and God says, I am. We say, I am not wise enough, and God says, I am. And we say, I am not sufficient enough, and God says, I am. I am all you need for all you face. And when we come to church, it is a glorious reminder, not of how great I am, not how great we are, but how great he is. It's the opportunity for us to gather and be reminded that we worship the great I am. I hope you know that that great I am that appeared to Moses in a burning bush is the same great I am who has a plan for your life and desires for you to experience the freedom from the bondage of sin. And if you're here today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, or if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not depending upon him in the very essence of who you are, you know where you are right now? Do you know where I might be right now? You know where we are without Jesus? We're questions without answers. Without Jesus, we are insecurities without assurance. Without Jesus, we are all of our mistakes without forgiveness. Without Jesus, all you have is you and you, excuse my grammar, ain't enough. You and me, we're not enough. But do you know what he says to all of us? I I am enough. I am loving. I am merciful. I am sovereign. I am good. I am patient. I am merciful. I am with you. I am. Let us pray.
So it is, God, that we rest in you, the great I am. There is no denying that each of us walk into the sanctuary with failures and insecurities, with the daunting task of life before us and around us, and we're tempted at the very essence of who we are to say, God, I I can't. And for each of us that feel that, may you, through the power of your Spirit, remind us that you are the great I am. May we turn to you, not only for salvation, but may we turn to you through the power of your Spirit for the very sustenance to take each step, each day, being reminded that you are with us. You are the great I am. Amen.